Sometimes when life gets you down, it's time to just shut up and dance. However, when you've been doing it for over a month, it might be worth weighing up some other options. This week, we're talking about a film that holds the record for the most Oscar nominations without a Best Picture nomination. That film is Sidney Pollack's 1969 film, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who this week is joined by a very different co-host. Austin, unfortunately, was not able to record this week, so we have an awesome replacement with a much bluer-tinged hair. Hello, it is I again, Alex Austin. I've been here twice before, and now I've returned. This week in review, we will be talking Death Note, American Maid, and Logan Lucky. In trending topic, we're going to be talking about the backlash against the all-female Lord of the Flies. And then finally, we will be talking about the 1969 Sidney Pollack-directed film, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? So, okay, so in honor of this week's film, I am going to be reviewing it in how long I would bother to dance during the duration of the film. (laughs) So, in theory, if the movie was the best movie ever, I would dance for an entire two hours all the way through its running time. If the movie is awful, then I'd do a couple of steps and give up. Start off with Death Note. Um, It is a somewhat controversial adaptation which premiered on netflix Uh, it's based off a beloved manga and anime series Uh, the film revolves around the character of light a high school student who is given a notebook called a death note by a god of death any name he writes in the notebook will result in that person dying moments after he has finished writing their name light tries to use the power to wipe what he perceives of as the evil of society from the face of the earth adopting the anonymous moniker of kira and portraying himself as a faceless god to the world However, this brings him into conflict with L, a genius detective who makes it his mission to hunt down Kira and find out his real identity. God, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, um... Got gods of death are also called Shinigami. Yeah, it's a Shinigami. It's a Japanese god of death, even though it's in America, which is obviously part of the controversy. Um, so I had... Up until about a month ago, I had heard of this, but never actually watched it. And uh, because I'm not really much of an anime fan, but Alex got me to actually sit and watch this. And I grew up on manga and anime. So, of course, I was like, yes, watch anime with me and don't give up halfway through. And we watched the whole thing. So I was very impressed. All 37 episodes, even though lots of people have said it should have only been 25 episodes because those are actually really well directed. Well, this comes to one of the interesting issues with the adaptation is when you're watching the anime, you're really taken with how much of it is inner monologue. It's just like it's it's sort of this uh, Kira light slash Kira pitted against L in this kind of way where they are continuously trying to outthink each other's moves. And there's not actually a lot of action in it. Most of it is them just sat in rooms trying to outthink each other and really not interacting with each other at all. Well, it's kind of funny because that's what struck me when... Because I didn't actually see the Ghost in the Shell movie with Scarlett Johansson in it. Um, but we did then watch the Ghost in the Shell animation movie. And I'd always heard so much about it and had been so hyped. Um, I was, you know, about my age now when I finally saw it and then I was really struck by how there wasn't really that much action in it and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised because animating takes a lot of time so it makes sense for them to try and like hold and again with the inner monologues like that's just something that happens a lot however 
it's not like it hasn't been done before and I just feel like it wasn't very well adapted in terms of, you know, you've got this thing, things like The Hunger Games, which were um, a, a novel adaptation um, where a lot of the book happens in Katniss's head and they trans they translated that to the screen and, like, it just didn't happen with this. At the same time, though, like, The Hunger Games still does genuinely have action and it's actually, like, yeah. there's almost no action sequences <laughs> in the original anime because all the action is him writing names down on those people dying. So, I mean, I think one of the problems that the film then has is it has to essentially make something that's weirdly, surprisingly not that cinematic suddenly cinematic. And because you can't really go into the inner monologue of Light's and L's heads, which is where a lot of the sort of moral debate about the vigilante elements and whether he has the moral right to be able to execute what he perceives of as evil people, um, it, it can't really do that anymore. And it kind of tries to have this moral argument by introducing uh, this character who is Light's girlfriend in... Here's a character who's really kind of not based off the manga, who's kind of created for the movie, played by Margaret uh, Qualey, um, who where they sort of end up having the philosophical debates about mm. what is righteous in terms of being able sure. to murder bad guys. But I would actually argue with you about whether the anime is cinematic or not. It's pretty cinematic for, yeah, a, mo- for a manga. It's visually anime. cinematic, but actually what they're doing is not that cinematic. So it's like, because they're mostly writing down names. I mean, it's really yeah. well, but it's, but it's cinematic took... in the form of an anime, though. <laughs> I just took issue with you saying it wasn't cinematic, because no. it is cinematic. <laughs> I guess, I get, but it's like, it's cinematic in an animated form, which doesn't translate to a, to a live action format, well, unless you you're doing something like go... Scott Pilgrim, where it yeah. becomes cartoonish so in you, style. You're saying, you're saying you couldn't just suddenly transport them into a dream sequence where they're standing on top of, like, really tall buildings and staring each other down, and they're both red and blue? Well... <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not really <laughs> sure how well that no, sort of that, really works. That was a joke. No, 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 I'm, I, I, I gotcha. I mean, it's just Michael Bay panning all around. Sure, yeah. he'd be a fan of that. But, I mean, I, I think the thing is, that the funny thing is this movie ends up feeling like it can't quite figure out what it wants to be. Mm. And it's only 90 minutes. And the film kind of really needed to commit to one of those two storylines. Yeah. Because it kind of feels like it doesn't service either one because it doesn't have the time for either element of it to breathe. And, you know, and I'm... I, I don't care much about the whole whitewashing controversy, if I'm being honest. I, I don't actually... I think, you well, know... Well, at least with this, like, going back to Ghost in the Shell, at least they set all of this in America. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like they were being like, oh, we're just bringing American people to Japan, um, which was obviously controversy there. So, yeah, I totally agree. So, I mean, and you know, so I, that part of it doesn't really bother me that much. I just think that they couldn't really figure out what they wanted to do, whether they wanted to make this a, tr- a true American reimagining of the concept or mm. whether they wanted to actually try and emulate the anime. Yeah, I guess, and by being neither, I don't think either one works. Yeah, I guess I don't, I don't really know how much they really had to add to it in the end because they didn't fully fledge. They, they tried a lot of stuff and I sort of ad- admired the fact that they tried you know, do something different with it. And I did really appreciate them trying to change Mia's character in particular because there's some Well, there's some Misa weird... is such a fucking awful Misa character in the Netflix. In, in, like, that's... It's, just it's not, not a good, it, it's it's not not a good, a good show good. for women. It really yes, isn't. It really the female isn't. characters are they awful. They get really... Yeah, yeah. So I, I respected it for that reason, but at the same time, it was trying to do, again, like you said, like an adaptation, but also do its own thing. And I think storyline-wise, they should have just stuck with you know, what was already there in the anime because 
what? it just didn't work out in the end they were trying to do too much and they couldn't even get to like other characters um later on in the series so it's not like they were trying to squeeze too much in but at the same time it felt like too much when it is interesting because i read an interview with um adam wingard the director who also directed your next which is a horror film i oh, really like um he sort of said that rather than being based off the character of misa mia um in the movie is actually supposed to be kind of the split personality of light in the anime so mm. she kind of represents the more sociopathic elements of light in the anime uh, that makes and sense. so that's kind of what that's supposed to be it's a way of trying to visualize his inner turmoil yeah the problem is that you know the non-sociopathic light in the american adaptation then does just come off like a wet blanket and i find that interesting from other perspectives however he was just kind of he wasn't very i don't know like he was just a really strange character in general i was like why are you doing this well i think you say you want to do it for these reasons but you don't really seem to have like a bad bone in your body i think that's the thing i think if they'd committed to the idea that this was going to be a film about this couple who were trying to um wrestle with these moral arguments you could have made a good 90 minute film out of that or if they had said this is going to be like a heat style thing where it's like light versus l and that's what this film is about then yeah i think it could have worked yeah but i think that's ultimately the film tries to be too much and doesn't have the time to develop any of that and i think i think the two of them were like quite realistic whereas then lakeith stanfield even though he did a great job as l like he really committed to it and clearly he was getting that direction to basically be the anime character he just seemed to be in a different like film yeah to the other two and it's not because he was doing a bad job it's just he just then seemed too unhinged and too cray cray by comparison that's to a everyone good point else. yeah the tone the the two elements do also feel very tonally diffuse so anyway so um on this i would you know what i i was into what they were trying to do with this film for maybe the first 10 or 15 minutes yeah like 10 it, or 15 i i was kind of like for that length of time, I was kind of like, okay, I'm kind of down with some of the changes. And in theory, I'm down with a lot of the changes they made to the anime because I just, I look at that. And as I said, in order to make a live action film, you just have to make certain changes in order to make it work. Um, but I, I I have to say 10 or 15 minutes was when I really started getting that dreaded feeling of, oh, wait, this is not going to work at you felt, all. You felt the tingle in your toes. Yeah. You were like, oh, wait, maybe I shouldn't do this. Yeah. It was like, and and then by the by about the forty five minute mark was when I was kind of like, oh, this is this is just bad. This is yeah. not it. So I'm I'm gonna. So that's it. That's the uh, the grade is ten or fifteen minutes that I would dance with this film. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So we are moving on to greener pastures with uh, Logan Lucky. Logan Lucky stars Channing Tatum, who is playing a down on his luck divorced father from West Virginia who hatches a plan to rob a NASCAR racetrack in Charlotte. He ropes in his one-armed brother, played by Adam Driver, and his hairdresser sister, played by Riley Keough, and together they assemble a team of oddballs, most notable of which is an off-the-chain Daniel Craig playing an explosions expert called Joe Bang, who they have to break out and break back into prison in order to do the heist. He's the best. It's Steven Soderbergh's first theatrical release since Side Effects, and goddamn, is it a lot of fun. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, no, um, I mean, it's almost seems redundant for, I feel a little bit for me to say that I, I really liked a Steven Soderbergh film, Shocker of Shocks, because 
I mean, I have to say, I'm one of those people who's always into, even when Steven Soderbergh's just kind of doing something experimental, because um, Steven Soderbergh's somebody who, to me, is always kind of experimenting with the format of film, and so I find him fascinating in that way. Speaking uh, about side effects, though, I'm not sure I was that down with that movie. I was well down for side effects. Yeah, maybe I need to rewatch it. Well, you, you saw side effects pre The Nick, and The Nick was when... Oh, that the, blew my mind. The Nick was when I, I got you into the, into the, the, mm. the Steven Soderbergh slipstream. Yep, yep. So I, I, I think like I, I think it's just great. I think it's going to have great rewatch value. That's the fun of it because again, the fun of a heist movie a lot of times is on the first go you're just getting all of the bells and whistles and you're 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 learn you're seeing all the the assembly of the team and you're watching closely to try and figure out what's going to happen. Then once you know it on the second go, you get to just enjoy the mechanics of it. Mm. So I'm kind of looking forward to rewatching it and just being able to kind of enjoy the mechanics of what's happening in it. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm not sure how much, how many hints are dropped about various bits and bobs, but it'd be interesting to see. I think if there's anything in there, I wouldn't be surprised if it's fairly tight though. I mean, the thing I will say is, the thing that I always remember about Ocean's Eleven is, as much as I enjoy Ocean's Eleven, that heist is ludicrous and really doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. But it's so much fun and it's mm. so charming that you don't give a shit. Whereas this is pretty pretty realistic. Like they make it quite they look they make it look quite doable. I still think there's like a Swiss watch precision to it, which you kind of if you were like really being if you were being like. I don't know, pedantic, and you were saying, oh, what, they'd have to know that much ahead of time that that's going to happen at that point, and then that person, that would have to be at precision timing for it to work out that way. I mean, I, I think I, I think you could level those same yeah, arguments no, no, against it. Yeah, knowing what you know later, then mm. you're kind of like, oh, right, okay. But, like, in terms of the actual deed, mm-hmm. like, it looks quite doable. But I, I also, I love, well, yeah, and I, I actually love that it was kind of a heist I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, you know, it was, it, it felt clever in what it was doing. Yeah, definitely. And, and the thing that I liked about it as well is Soderbergh's just so great at just showing you something that later becomes significant. It's like you don't know yeah. at the time why you're looking at something and then later oh, yeah. on, you're like, mm. oh, that's why he showed yeah, me that. that totally got me. At one point, I was just like, because because I'm always trying to, like, dissect films now because I can't just an- enjoy films like a normal human being anymore because I, I, I live with a certain person, in case you hadn't been able to tell already. Uh, but I was like, oh, why is this shot here? It seems so unnecessary. And then later on, I was like, oh... Um, yeah, but I don't really want to spoil it. So, which I I think that's the thing. I think Soderbergh's a form. You know, he's a great formalist, and I think he mm. is very efficient in his visuals. Yeah, he just made it look so low key, and then you're like, oh right, okay. And it's it's also like it, it's a film too that I think gets by on a lot of charm as well because like the cast is just great. I mean, that's the thing is I am always more and more impressed every time I see Channing Tatum because I think he's just oh, such God, a yeah. really great. I think he's a great leading man in the sense that he's just got this really likable presence no matter what he's doing. And I think he just works so well at the center of a film. And I think and and I, I just think like it's like I, I still think like he was really underserved by um, the awards campaigns for Foxcatcher because I actually thought he was the best performance in the film. Mm. And here again, like I think he just he plays schlubby and he does it Mm. well and he's not being his sort of like dashing charming i'm light on my feet guy he's playing like a schlubby dude and 
I mean, it also he's so too subtle, and that's the problem. Is like subtlety doesn't get yeah. rewarded. Yeah, and he's a, he's. A, I mean, he's an authentic Southerner as well. You know, I think he's mm. from Georgia or Arkansas. He's he's from he might be from I don't know. I, he's he's from somewhere in the South. I do know that much. In the uh, South. Yeah, and I think he's. Uh, oh, I just speak like this now. Yeah, and I think like this is me doing my Joe Bang impression. Well, to be fair, there's a lot of like <laughs> very big, broad southern accents going my around name is Joe Bang. but it's like it it does like it veers into sort of coen brothers-esque kind mm, of high yeah. cartoonishness at times yeah totally i mean like uh like even just like it has this it had that bit about like going to see the bear yeah and it's just like this 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 sort of like momentary sight Again. gag which just does feel very coen brothers-esque yeah, and I, but no, I mean, and I, I will say that despite that too, it had a moment that honestly uh, got me a little bit choked up, got me a little bit emotional. <laughs> so yeah, no, I would say that I would dance all night long with this movie. I, I would, I, I would, I would dance the whole way through, and then I put it on replay, and then dance to it again. So at least four hours. Oh well, that's that is definitely high praise. Yes, yes. Okay, so finally, uh, the only movie Alex didn't see, uh, which is American Made, which eh. I had for I thought for a couple of months, I think, on this podcast, been saying I think looks like looks like shit, and I think it's going to be shit, and Tom Cruise looks too old, and it looks terrible, uh, and I got uh, convinced to go along to it because uh, of some really good reviews and uh, Bradley saying, "Hey, I'm free this night. Do you want to go to see American Made?" So. Went along to it, and uh, the film is Tom Cruise playing Barry Seal, a real-life pilot who found himself working for both the CIA and the Medellin drug cartel. Uh, basically, Barry is a middle-aged guy feeling very unsatisfied with his life as a TWA pilot, smuggling cigars on the side for some extra cash. One night in a bar, he's approached by a CIA agent played by Donald Gleason, who offers Barry the opportunity to courier money and info into Panama for General Noriega. During one of his missions, he's picked up by the Medellin drug cartel, who pay him to fly cocaine into the U.S. When Seal almost gets busted by the DEA, the CIA set up Seal in Arkansas with his own land and landing strips so he can continuously work for them, flying guns to the Contras in Nicaragua and turning a blind eye to his cocaine smuggling. And that's about not even halfway through the movie, to be honest. Like, basically the movie's all go, all escalation, all forward momentum, and, you know, I fucking hold my hands up to it. I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was... It's like it's like a movie that has so much energy and so much pace that you don't have a moment to kind of sit and smell the flowers. It just keeps moving forward. And in this weird way that even though in theory, when I looked at the trailer and I said, well, Tom Cruise looks too old for this movie. I mean, I, I think the main character was in his late 30s, early 40s when the events happened. Um, I it, it, it weirdly it, it worked. I think he's actually works perfectly in the film like he's there's something in the Tom Cruise persona that you kind of feel like the shit eating grin is is there's something that's not quite honest about it and it works perfectly for this character because you feel like Tom Cruise when he's grinning at you is trying to sell you a used car and that's a little bit who this character is and I mean you know I it's got this really shaggy dog style 
Um, I think the cinematography is butt ugly. I hate the cinematography, but it's honestly the only thing I don't like about this film. And, and I think, you know, it's the sort of thing that suits Doug Lyman because he's sort of perfect at making these movies where they seem to just shoot a shitload and kind of work it all out in post. And I think this movie was in post for a very long time, but shockingly enough, it, it, it just works and it flies. And there's a ton of movies like this, you know, like blow or even say something last year, like war dogs that like want to be these kind of trips into kind of dark commerce and the criminal world and drug cartels and all of this. And most of them are kind of all right. Like, you know, Lord of war is fine. War dogs was fine, but they're all a little bit underwhelming. And this one is probably the one I think works the best out of the ones I've seen recently. I, I genuinely think this was a really good movie and I really enjoyed it. Well, clearly I missed out. Well, clearly um, you did. When you say Shaggy Dog style, but then you say that you don't like the cinematography, what do you mean by Shaggy Dog style? Because that... Well, it feels very erratic. It feels kind of like they've got... like the, It's a lot of handheld cameras and it feels kind of like they're saying, hey, well, you know, they're just roving around grabbing stuff as they go. And it feels kind of like they're just filming everything and kind of like we'll work it all out in post rather than it feeling like a concise designed film. But you're saying that the Shaggy Dog style works really well, but that the cin- cinematography is ugly. Well, I hate the look of the film. It's kind of I think I think the look, the film, the actual picture quality and what the film looks like looks ugly as shit. I see. Um, but I think the Shaggy Dog style in terms of how it tells the story works. Mm. It's a... I know how those two things sound controversial. I don't, I, on, on a pure aesthetic level, I don't like the visual look of the film, but I like how it propels it forward and the style of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to, I think, I wasn't sure how clear that was, so that's why I asked the question. That's all right. That's, it's all right. That's why you're co-hosting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, so I would say I would definitely dance the full the full running time of this film. It's, uh, I, I'm actually quite up for going to see it again. I really, really enjoyed it. Okay, so this week in Trending Topics, we are talking about the recently announced uh, adaption of Lord of the Flies by directors Scott McGee and Evan Siegel, uh, of who had previously directed a film called What Maisie Knew. Uh, and the significant thing about this adaptation is that it would star entirely young women as opposed to the uh, 12 to 13 year old boys from the original novel. Um, it, this... it might be worth mentioning that most of the articles also include saying that it's planned. It's not like it's... a definite oh, thing yeah. that's happening. Well, it certainly was at least announced in some kind of formal way. Mm. But... Um, this caused the internet to lose its shit over the past week. I know I did. So, Alex, you're a lady. Am I? You've, you've been around other ladies yes. in, a, in a group setting. Yes. If you put a bunch of ladies on an island, do you believe that they would, they would, they would form a perfect society? An Amazonian, wondrous woman type society? Uh, the thing is... And I think this is why people say that an adaptation of it would be be a bit weird, um, is because female, in a general sweeping way, because every woman is different. Careful. What? You gotta be careful. I know. Uh, In a general sweeping way. Um, 
women tend to express aggression in a more backstabbing, talk behind people's backs, manipulative way, rather than uh, I've got my fists out and I'm going to punch you and you asshole kind of way. Um, so I think that's probably where people's issues are kind of coming from, is that it wouldn't lead to outward aggression that quickly. Well, I think, I think there's kind of three points that I think are interesting to hit on this. So, I mean, the first one being that they've claimed this is going to be a faithful adaptation of William Golding's That's book. That's just stupid. Which calls into question a little bit what we're talking about here, which is the gender dynamics and whether, you know, you can faithfully adapt Lord of the Flies with women, with young women behaving in the same way as young men. Now, I'm not necessarily, and I, I was, I was personally thought this was, this sounded like a really stupid idea, this project. And my feeling a little bit is because for me personally, I always think Lord of the Flies, I've always read Lord of the Flies as a, as a book that is actually deconstructing why femininity is needed within society. And, you know, and my feeling has always been that genders work kind of like a yin and yang is that both are necessary, are necessary to each other. But I think the difficulty is, is if you purely put women in that role and say, okay, women are then going, their immediate impetus is we don't want to build shelter. We want to go off and hunt, which is where the original problems form with the breakoff tribe in the book. It seems like something that would be less likely for young women to do than young men. Now, I'd not. You still need to keep the idea of survival in mind, though, at that point. They would still, they would still they probably decide who is going to go do it instead of people being like, I'm rebelling and all that kind of stuff. Like survival is still a huge part of the book and, you know, they'll, they'll still need to go and hunt stuff yeah, to but survive. The dynamic part of, part of what the book ends up doing is, I mean, the book is essentially talking about how you take away civilization and we regress back to more primal urges and instincts. So, and I it, think, so I think the, but time... the tribe is the tribe. So the point is, that um, that the breakoff tribe is essentially regressing back to a hunter gatherer state, and their sure. interest is impurely. That's what, that that is a really good point and a big big important part of I think where this discussion could go if it ends up happening. Though it's kind of doubtful at this point. <laughs> hopefully, um, but it's kind of the idea of time passing and like how much time and how being away from humanity as we know it and society as we know it as to how that would change women um, in a similar situation. So it it would be quite interesting to delve into that. However, I do think that doing it in a faithful adaptation way where they go through the same character beats just doesn't make any sense. Well, I think that's the thing. I think, I think in a film about young women on an island is an interesting idea, I'm not sure trying to graft women onto the male characters of Lord of the Flies yeah. actually works. And this actually brings up two other points. Especially because it's a male writer. Okay. Well, okay, that was actually my second point. As a woman, obviously as a female filmmaker, how do you, does the idea that it's two men writing and directing bother you? It does. It bothers me a lot, especially with the conversations that are going on at the moment. And it just seems backwards it really does i mean i wouldn't even necessarily mind it being a male director as long as it was actually written by a woman and so, there have been like adaptations and like reimaginings of the lord of the flies and similar situations so 
rather than trying to take something that people know, you know, take it as like inspiration, say that it was based on the Lord of the Flies, but, you know, do something new with it. Okay, so so say say like this had been announced and it was Karen Kusama or it was Dee Reese or if it was Ava DuVernay or somebody like that, do you think that your feeling about it would be immediately different? No. Because if it was announced the way it was announced, I'd still be like, but that doesn't make any sense if they're doing a faithful adaptation. I'd still say that, you know, they want to do that whole franchise thing where they're like, oh, well, this is a book that everyone read in their whatever's, like when they were growing up at school, whatever, like everyone has to read it at some point. Like, don't say faithful adaptation at that point. You, You can call it an adaptation, but like try and do something real with it instead of trying to just regurgitate stuff that we already know. And I suppose like part of this is going back to one of my constant ir- irritations in general with uh, film, the film industry at the moment is an inability to support and put forward original work. You know, again, starring women uh, well, just in, in, gen- general. in general at the moment, to be honest. But it's like, again, I'm up for a film that is exploring uh, female dynamics in this kind of way of young women altogether. I mean, I was reading an article that said, uh, if you don't believe women are capable of being vicious and violent, you've never been to a slumber slumber party before. Mm. Um, You know, you've never been to a sorority house. And I mean, like, arguably, you could say movies like Heathers or movies like Mean Girls have dissected, you know, sort of, toxic femininity if you want or even like i was watching um muriel's wedding the other day and again that is a film that dissects the sort of evils and cruelties that uh women can do to each other in in and I, i but i think that's the interesting thing is it does it within the dynamic of these kind of friendship groups these organized you know these more organized elements whereas i think like the idea of people stranded on an island again it sort of veers more into a sort of hyper-masculine idea a lot of the time. I mean, this is this is where I'd say, like, I'd actually be game for, say, Karen Kazama or whoever, like, women, uh, writing an adaptation of this story uh, and actually dissecting and doing research and trying to find something out because I don't want it to just be like, oh, bitches be crazy and then they're all bitchy to each other and they just want to slap each other and blah, blah, blah. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm actually, I'd actually be quite interested in a movie where it's like genuinely like young prepubescent girls or pubescent girls, mm. you know, having to go back to basics and have to survive. Like that kind of stuff does terrible things to you. And you can kind of see that in, uh, you know, war, war scenarios, you know, you do what you need to, to survive and you become but, a hardened, but at the you same time, more hardened. But that's and I'm not, not the point saying of the book. That that, but that's I'm not, not, the I'm not the saying book. that it's the point of the book. What I'm trying to say is I'm interested in, uh, the idea of a group of women on an Island and what would happen with that okay. with like actual research rather than trying to take some story that's already been done. Um, and like, you know, I'm just talking about a completely different story here. Yeah. I'm not talking about Lord of the Flies anymore. We're taking the very, very basic concept of there's a couple of, like, there's a group of boys that have been dumped on an island and now they have to, like, survive. Then but do the, point the same is not thing that with They women. have to survive. The point is that they, that they, that civilization crumbles because they can't survive. 
Yeah, no, I get that. But what I'm saying is I, I, I'm not interested in the book anymore. I'm talking about like a hypothetical. But it's it's interesting, though, because I find that what you're suggesting is you're interested in the more positive elements, the survivalist elements, which is not which which is. But that's but the problem that people have with this adaptation is that it's essentially asserting that women would be destructive on the, in that as opposed to being able to survive. Because that's what the book is about. The book is about the downfall of civilization and the destruction. But that's what I'm saying is it wouldn't, because it would be a different, in my head, yeah. the thing that I'm proposing, it's a completely da- different adaptation. So it would be more about, I guess, you know, how women would interact with each other in this situation rather than it being, you know, it having to be about the downfall of civilization anymore. However, the, the reason that I mentioned that I wouldn't want it to just be like Heather's or whatever. Like, I think it would be interesting to have a different take on this is because, you know, you say things like, oh, well, I'm not sure that they get violent and all that kind of thing, but you don't know that. And that's why I'd say that that's why it would be interesting to find out and sort of do a bit. I'm not sure. I'm not saying that I don't think they get violent. I think the, the ways aggression would be demonstrated would probably be different. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but that's why I'm saying so f- fundamentally in the society that we exist in at the moment, fundamentally, the reaction would be different given mm. each group. So that's why you can't have it be the exact same story. So why bother? No. And I, I think this actually brings us to the third and final point that I think is interesting within this is um, the sort of theme at the moment of Hollywood taking and uh, gender swapping mm-hmm. movies. Um, you know, you have a couple of examples of this um, coming up with them uh, trying to develop a version of Splash with Channing Tatum as the mermaid in the Daryl Hannah part. Um, a, they just want to have Channing Tatum hot topless again, let's be honest. Oh, who doesn't? Um, I know. And um, also, uh, they're wanting to reboot The Rocketeer with a female stunt woman, and they are, we have the adaptation, well, we have the uh, reimagining of Ocean's Eleven as Ocean's Eight, an all female heist gang. So. Ocean's Eight is the one I'm actually interested in because you can tell that it's not going to be based on characters that have existed before. So it's actually just a heist movie with a bunch of women in it. But technically that was what Ghostbusters also was. They weren't, they were original characters, but they were just within yeah, the realm of the Ghostbusters. but you still had like the cliches of like, oh, the, the smart one with that like does the thing with the gear and then... But how do you know that's not what Ocean's 8 is going to be? Well, who knows? But my hope is that it won't be... But I, I just think like... I, th- I think my big problem with it is that it goes around with the whole Hollywood half-assing things. It's the same way with The Mummy. They said, oh, people liked The Mummy back in 1999. Uh, Universal has all of these rights to these horror, you know, characters, and we're not doing anything with it. So let's just make a dark universe out of it. And again, it just feels like it, it feels like that level of logic. Hey, what's a recognizable film? Um, okay. How can we remake that? Oh, we'll make the leads women. It it's and I and I think this goes to a general problem in Hollywood at the moment where you kind of you're you're looking at this and you're kind of saying like where is the original go- content going to come from? What how are we going to like 
I, I, I end up thinking about this. Like, so, you know, I think about, say, like when I was a kid and like, say, Jurassic Park was the movie I was obsessed with. But like when I think about it, like what kids are watching these days, kids are mostly just watching warmed over versions of shit that I used to watch. Like I'm just watched the trailer for like the remake of the Magic School Bus TV show. And so I'm sitting there going, like, kids today are just going to end up watching the same shit I watched as a kid. Like. You know, it's it's like we're just regurgitating the same shit over and over again. And to me, just being like, oh, well, we'll just make the leads female. That's part of the whole epidemic of just bullshit that's being put out in Hollywood at the moment. Well, it's not even like the female aspect again. Like people have always remade movies, but I think it's happening more frequently now. Uh, and the whole female aspect of it is because there's a lot of criticism around at the moment about there not being enough roles for women and it'll be interesting to see what they do with it but at the same time I also feel like again like you said it's patronizing in a way because you'll still have a reference directly to what came before so you'll have to then either fit into that or it'll be written in a way where it's completely original and new but then there'll still be people who are like yeah, but it's not as good as the original anyway. So you have like super huge, huge shoes. To well, and I also don't like, so if I look the at the whole Ghost... exercise seem, seems pointless. Well, and if I look at the like Ghostbusters, an example, I, I can't see how that's particularly helping mm-hmm. women in film in any way, because it's, I, it's a film that to me, it's got nothing to do with the gender element to it. It was set up badly to begin with in the sense that Ghostbusters is kind of one of those films that's elusive in the sense that the basic concept seems like it should be ripe for remakes, but actually the chemistry and setup of those actors is what makes that film work. And so I kind of think like, I think if you got four new guys and stuck them in those roles, it would have been equally as underwhelming and shit. I just think that Ghostbusters is one of those things that worked because of the people involved in it. Yeah. You can't just remake it that. It just kind of came together. And, and I think... I think, unfortunately, that's the sort of thing that could be very, very difficult if you just start going around saying, we're just going to stick women in this. In theory, these guys, they could have a take on it, which uh, turns out great. I have no idea what the planning is. All I know is the basic concept doesn't sound like a good idea to me. But if, for instance, this thing does end up getting made, because I kind of feel like it's probably not at this point because of the bad sort of press and pushback on it, I kind of, you know, I am totally willing to still give it a chance. I mean, if their take is truly good enough, if they're like, oh, well, everyone's just kind of understood it wrong and we actually had this really good idea, like, they'll either come out and say, we're still doing it, but here's more explanation as to, like, why we think it's a good idea. But you just kind of wonder why they came out with such, like, a for want of a better word, basic bitch sort of pitch for it. Like... You want them to explain the whole movie to you? No. God, I don't want to be mansplained. (laughs) (laughs) This is a running joke with us. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, no, it's it's more... Just at the basic level, like, why didn't they think that this was going to cause issues? I don't know. I mean, it just seems kind of dumb. Uh, we will, we will have to see how this develops. Um, I, I'm sure I you'll again, keep them updated. Again, I'm kind of have my suspicions that this film will never get made now. I fucking hope so. Or at least get a female writer on board. Jesus, what's wrong with you? I'm sorry, but you didn't go through puberty as a woman, so you don't know. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Easy come, 
people are the ultimate spectacle. And now, now you're going to see it, Yowza, the Derby! One couple, and only one, who walks out of here over broken bodies and broken dreams, carrying the grand prize of 1,500 silver dollars. I mean, if you think about it, cattle ain't got it much worse than us. She ain't pregnant. I'm Nelson Eddy. So what's healthier than having a kid? Number 78 is in Duffin and Floor Judge over there. Come on. What are you going to do? Put us in cages and let them throw peanuts at us? The boy from 67 is down. He is definitely down. Look at us. We're all like this now. Dirty, swollen feet, no sleep. What do you want? Cody, six, seven. Shut up, Doc Dominic. I'm heading up. Oh, hang on, Lisa. Kiss me, kiss me. Jesus! They ain't quitting. Okay, so uh, they shoot horses, don't they? Do Ro- they? Robert, <laughs> I, I need to I need to read the synopsis. Okay, okay go ahead. Robert Sverton, um, who once dreamed of becoming a great film director, recalls the events leading up to an unstated crime. In his youth, he saw a horse break its leg, after which it was shot and put out of its misery. Years later, in 1932, during the Great Depression, he wanders into a dance marathon about to begin in a shabby Santa Monica ballroom, perched over the Pacific Ocean on the Santa Monica Pier near Los Angeles. He is recruited by MC Rocky as a substitute partner for a cynical malcontent named Gloria, uh, when her original partner is disqualified because because of an ominous cough. Uh, Among the other contestants competing for the prize of 1,500 silver dollars is Harry, a middle-aged sailor, Alice, and her partner, Joel, both aspiring actors, and an impoverished farm worker, James, and his pregnant wife. Early in the marathon, the weaker pairs are eliminated quickly while Rocky observes the vulnerability of the stronger contestants and exploits them for the audience's amusement. Frayed nerves are exacerbated by the theft of one of Alice's dresses and Gloria's displeasure at the attention Alice receives from Robert. In retaliation, she takes Joel as her partner, but when he receives a job offer and departs, she aligns herself with Harry. Weeks into the marathon, in order to spark the paying speculator's enthusiasm, Rocky stages a series of derbies in which the exhausted contestants clad in tracksuits must race around the dance floor with the last three couples eliminated. Harry has a fatal heart attack during one of the races, but the undeterred Gloria lifts him on her back and crosses the finish line. Harry dies as Gloria drags him. Alice, who witnesses the death, has a breakdown and is taken away. Lacking partners, Robert and Gloria again pair up. Rocky suggests the couple marry during the marathon, a publicity stunt guaranteed to earn them some cash. 
When Gloria refuses, he reveals the contest is not what it appears. Expenses will be deducted from the prize money, leaving the winner with close to nothing. Shocked by the revelation, the couple drops out of the competition. The two leave the dance hall and stand on the pier overlooking the ocean. Gloria confesses how empty she feels inside and tells Robert that she wants to kill herself. But when she takes the gun out and points it at herself, she cannot pull the trigger. Desperate, she asks Robert, help me. He, uh, he obliges and shoots her in the head. Questioned by the police as to the motive of his action, Robert responds, they shoot horses, don't they? Roll credits. So, um, this was a film that I saw a couple of years ago, and it's like previous film um, we talked about on the podcast, Wake and Fright. It was a film that kind of just stuck in my head afterwards because it's a really just bleak, bleak vision of humanity. Um obviously set during one of the bleakest periods in American history, the Great Depression. Um, And I think I was just really, really taken by its sort of allusions to sort of modern phenomenons like reality television, which is interesting because uh, the film predates reality television, really. Um, But it's this idea that uh, humanity is spectacle and human suffering is kind of something that has always kind of existed and something we've always been fascinated by and that we're always willing to exploit. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was, I thought it was fascinating and, uh, you'd never seen the film before. What did you think? No, I hadn't. I was just actually thinking about what you were saying in terms of it historically being, you know, human suffering being, Mm -hmm. uh, a, a thing that people enjoy. So you had the gladiators and all that kind of thing. And so they found a different way of doing it without directly, emphasis on directly killing people uh even though obviously people do did die during this due to exhaustion or heart attacks or whatever um so it's just it was it was really quite fascinating and even though it's all about this one event and we don't really leave the dance hall that much it it goes by quite quickly and um it's quite pacey, actually. Yeah, it's got a lot of momentum to it. Because there's a lot of little events in it, like the derbies and the challenges and people sort of sizing each other up and all that kind of stuff. Well, in the sort of derby sequence where they kind of have to race round, and the idea being that the last three couples who crossed the line are eliminated, um, it's a really, really sort of harrowing spectacle. It feels mm. very sort of tense and, well, actually very intense. Yeah. And it, it's sort of like, it feels like you kind of just catch your breath at the end of it because it just, the editing becomes so quick and the sound design becomes so overbearing and you're just really, really just swept away in this kind of rush of just this sort of the, the the horrible crash of humanity all within it while you also kind of get the fe- the re- the realization of the audience who's watching it they're watching it for this amusement you know that you're watching these people suffer oh, yeah. for other people's amusement and these people are literally like fighting for their lives well, they're, like they're, they're not they're doing it on several levels so they're doing it not only because they're essentially like depriving themselves of sleep because these guys only got like two hours sleep a night um and like 10 minutes rest every hour and 50 minutes um and so they are dying in a way so they're fighting for their lives in that way but they can't get out of the competition either because they think that it's going to like solve their problems in the great depression as well so they feel like i mean a lot of these people clearly feel like they have no other option other than to take part in this competition so and then the further they get into it it's just this like 
vicious cycle essentially of the further they get into it you're kind of like well why would you want to give up if you had an option of not giving up we've committed at that because you committed yeah. at that point you know when when they've been dancing already for like 72 hours you're kind of like why why would you give up if you'd already like essentially like spent so much time on it already well the interesting thing was i was i actually uh was reading up on the actual dance marathons because this was a real thing these these things really existed and essentially um there were a lot of people who just joined because they got free food because that that was the thing mm. is that i mean during that time you had you know these 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 huge overflows that say soup kitchens and so because people were just people were starving to death at that point so i mean especially in california where you had this huge influx of people coming in from the midwest from the dust bowl um so there was this sudden just huge overpopulation of poor farmers who'd come in uh trying with these sort of hopes of finding work in on the coast um, and the thing that was interesting, I thought in the setup of it is that you can kind of see how everything is manipulated and maximized to sort of torture and bring these people into this, uh, and, 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 and play it up to the audience. So you see how he kind of manipulates what the people are doing. So there's the whole thing with Alice and how Alice is a, um, she's an aspiring actress and so every, between each session, because I think they dance for about two hours, then they get like a 10 minute break, then they'll do another two hours, then 10 minute break. And then I think they get like a couple of hours to sleep. And it's like it's really just grueling and brutal. But the thing with Alice is that she's got these different dresses. She's got uh, this fancy makeup on because she wants to be spotted by talent scouts because some of these things like Hollywood's producers would come to them. So people were trying to play up sometimes to, um, you know, to try and get a job out of it. And so um, the gig young who plays the kind of organizer of it, he reveals later on that he's the one who stole the dress and caused her to get to, to sort of freak out because he's like, she can't look good because that's not what people are paying for. They're not paying because they want to see someone glamorous uh, sort of trot about. They want to see people sweaty and disheveled and disgusting and depressed and upset. They want to see the pain and the suffering. Yeah, in to them. an extent, it's literally like, like with reality TV, sometimes, not always, but sometimes where essentially they want to be like, well, my life is pretty bad right now, but it's not as bad as these guys' lives. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking about like Big Brother, right? And how I remember seeing the first season of Big Brother, well, at least the first British season back in like the year like 2000. The funny thing is if you watch the clips from that, it is unrecognizable because it is basically a bunch of pretty normal looking people all kind of just sitting around and not doing very much. And clearly what happened over time is they just started developing more and more. We need to bring crazier people in. We need to bring more volatile people in. We need to keep finding ways to manipulate them so that they will be more volatile. So they'll get angry because that's what people are tuning into. They're not tuning in to see a bunch of normal people sit around and complete challenges. They're cut to it again because they want to see people freak out and do crazy shit. Yeah. I mean, it's at the moment you have that what that show Love Island. That's you know mm. the whole point of which is to just watch people fuck and yell at each other, and that that's it. And so I mean, this is what this is. It is he essentially the depression era producer of Love Island, saying how do we get how do the people who are paying to come and sit and watch and watch this spectacle how are they going to get their money's worth? 
Yeah, I totally agree. So what did it's you... Good assessment. So I don't... I don't you, normally I like to ask Austin about the performances, uh, and because uh, he's obviously the resident actor, but um, but obviously he's not around, and you're an actor, so uh, you tell me, what did, what did you what did you make of the performances? Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing, I guess, again, because it's an... I'm going to going to probably show myself up here but I'm like because it's an older movie 1969 that's not that old <laughs> it's old enough you realize uh, my mother's going to hear this and she's going to be like what are you saying 1969 is old <laughs> I was alive then um, but because it is an older movie there is like a certain style to it however it's not as theatrical as other much older films that I've seen so it's it's quite interesting to see sort of like an in-between I'd almost say well this is really coming out of the Hollywood new wave as well so this mm. is kind of like being very heavily influenced by European cinema and it's really sort of taking it out of the more sort of classical sort of I think what you kind of what you you're you're sort of thinking of is the more kind of staged more mannered style of yeah. sort of classical Hollywood so I was I was quite happy that it was like that and um Jane Fonda is mesmerizing to watch I haven't seen her in that many things, and but the one thing I did see her in, which I think was Barbarella. Barbarella, yeah, she's in Barbarella. Um, like completely. Not, yeah, Barbara. Like you couldn't get much more different than Barbarella. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, she can act. <laughs> so that that was kind of it. I was like, is that the same person? So I was really impressed by that, and um, yeah, just how, you know, she she wasn't like that likable well actually that's the yeah that's the interesting thing so i was like well you know where where are those roles these days like why can't people rely on characters being not likable and just let the 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 sort of inherent drama of a situation speak for itself because it's it's a very intrinsic situation um and yeah i mean the thing is i feel like what's quite nice about it is it's more of a you don't get to know the characters that well because they're just, you know, it's the situation. It's very immediate. Like, you don't get a lot yeah. of backstory. They're just kind of like they're, you get their kind of basic setups and scenarios and, and everything is about. Yeah, that didn't even bother me that much. It's just quite interesting, again, to see how it's changed quite a lot. So it's actually more about the the subject matter of the times and sort of like the critique of the situation if you like it's Whereas, a very contained movie because it's all really just set in that that setup you know yeah, you're and, always and you with the dance competition you understand what, what everyone's um sort of motivations are like that's all very clear it's not that you don't know what they want or why they're doing what they're doing you definitely know that but it's not a case of again like over explaining inner monologues or anything like that because you've got so much going on there's quite a few characters actually so that's that's how it's you know, by comparison to like a lot of movies where nowadays they just stick a bunch of stars in and they have to like give everyone enough to do. Instead, you got these. I mean, obviously, I don't recognize these people, so it's probably bad for me to say this. But because I didn't know who anyone was apart from Jane Fonda, I was able to just concentrate on the actual narrative of the story. And I didn't mind if I didn't get less of a certain person. So I, I think that's what it is. It's an ensemble piece. And I, I really respected it for that. What's interesting, too, because Jane Fonda is really kind of like, even though I think technically the film is about Michael Sarazen because he's the one who says, he's the one who obviously says the line. It's really about his. He's also like the outsider. Yeah. And he's he's the guy who sort of introduced, he's like, but he's he's sort of more occupying that audience surrogate role. We are essentially him and we are experiencing this as him. 
But Jane Fonda very much feels like she is the lead because very much she's the one who is the most kind of dynamic and... Well, she has agency. Yeah, and I think she's the most kind of nuanced character. Though I would say the thing I thought was really interesting is Gig Young as Rocky, the sort of the organizer of it, I actually thought he was really interesting because I thought, like, I, I don't... I think it's really interesting how he's very pragmatic there's a sort of i always think there's a real fascinating 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 idea in the idea that evil is something that is about necessity mm. rather than somebody is just i'm evil for the sake of being evil he's he sort of gives a whole speech about how he comes from a sort of um snake oil salesman background like his his dad was a, i can't remember what he said his dad sold something. He was like a traveling salesman or something like that. But there's very much this idea of they sold it based, they sold falsehoods based on kind of like claims. Mm -hmm. So, and he sort of relates that kind of to what he's doing here and this idea of like, it's about what you're selling them, not what's actually going on. And I, but I thought the interesting thing is it's never presented as if he's this Machiavellian guy who's behind the scenes going, ha, I'm going to make these people suffer for my own amusement. He's like, we're putting on a show. This is how you put on a show. He's like, yeah, I took your dress because that's how we get a better show out of it. And I think there's something, his sort of matter of factness is really kind of fascinating and actually kind of is more yeah. malevolent than if he had just been some hand wringing evil guy. Yeah, definitely. I think, again, for him, it's clearly like survival he needs to cover his overheads as well as make a little bit of money on the side i'm not sure how much money he's actually making doing it and as that's well. that's so really again, it becomes about his survival so he he probably knows that what he's doing isn't like the greatest thing on the planet but he doesn't really know he, he also doesn't know what else to do at this point so he's like well if people are willing to sign up and do it then why shouldn't I take uh, advantage of that? Well, I'm sure that's probably the way he justifies itself. He's like, I didn't put a gun to anybody's head. They decided to participate. You know, what if, you know, I'm sure, you know, it's the sort of thing where he could even be thinking, hey, these are people who would be out on the street starving to death if I wasn't give if they weren't in here yeah. being given sure. uh, meals every day. And it's like, I'm, I mean, it's the, like, well, they didn't ask for all the details. It's kind of like people selling other people pyramid schemes, and right? That's, that's <laughs> genuinely kind of like what some of these people who participate in these dance marathons thought they thought you know uh they're out of work they have no way to pay for money to, to pay for food so you know for this four or five weeks or however long they're competing in this that was them being fed they yeah. were like they they were like well i've got i've got food for that but that amount does, of time yeah, i does, got somewhere to stay it does very much become about surviving from day to day though doesn't it it's mm -hmm. like how do you even think about the future but i guess like if you're just dancing every day and you're really tired, you don't really need to think about it anymore because you don't have the physical strength to. It's it's interesting too because um, I think um, I this film, as I said, it was it's the film with the most amount of uh, Oscar nominations without being nominated for Best Picture. Um, Gig Young, who plays the who plays Rocky, he got, he was, he won best supporting actor. Susan York was nominated. Jane Fonda was nominated. So clearly I think this is a film that really does rely a lot on the sort of the subtleties of what's going on with the performances. Um, but I also think that uh, the other person who was nominated was Sidney Pollack for best director. And I think this film really has a very, very steady hand. I would agree. 
for falling asleep. Mm. Um, yeah, it's kind of, again, I think that's what I was kind of picking up on in terms of the ensemble pieces. Everyone's doing their bit and everyone's contributing in such a huge way and the overall quality of everything is, you know, so level that nothing really sticks out in a way where you could fault it, really. Uh, it is what it is. Well, it's interesting, too, because if you think about that final scene... Um where Jane Fonda basically asks um, uh, the main character to shoot her. It's something that could have been so easily awfully melodramatic, and it mm. could have been terrible, but it's, you know, I, I kind but of... They're so exhausted, mm. and we know why. Like, that's, you know, it earns it. It earns that moment, and they don't really have to do too much, really. Like, surely they are. They're, 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 they're acting their socks off but at the same time it's quite understated and like you said it could could easily be melodramatic and um there could be like swelling music and all that kind of thing but i'm pretty sure i remember there was no music at all i don't actually from the the waves crashing i think that's the thing i think i was so we were finally outside i don't even think i was dissecting it that much at that point yeah i mean i'm just trying to remember back but i'm pretty sure it was quite a quiet moment Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this realization of, well, I don't have anything else to go to, and why did I do that? But mm-hmm. what else am I going to? And there's there's nothing really. I think that's the thing. It's 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 that moment of kind of complete hopelessness that there's nothing yeah. to look forward to. There's I, nothing to. Re- I actually think there's like a quite an interesting extra bit that's kind of tied up into it now that people are a lot more educated about mental mental health as well as all I could think is oh if she could just like hold on for a couple days and recover from that ordeal the ordeal that she's just been through because by the end of it they've been dancing for like what a month Mm -hmm. and like that's basically become their life if she just hold on for a little while and had a support system she might be able to see the point in living but at that moment in time, she makes a split split second decision and someone helps her to do it so it becomes finite instead of, you know, the possibility of her surviving becoming a thing. But it's, it's, it's like, you know, you sort of think about, it, like, what point of desperation do you have to be in before you even take part in that? Mm. And then add into it what the suffering that they've gone through. And then the fact that, you know, I mean, just the fact that she's at that point her partner had a heart attack and she dragged his dead body across yeah, a finish line just so she wouldn't get disqualified for, for this competition. And then, you know, she tries, she gives Rocky sexual favors in order to, you know, sort of like, um, attain some, in order to keep in his good graces. Yeah. And but then, that's what I'm saying. Is and like, then at the that, end is, is, is just matter of factly kind of tossed off and told, you know, well, you're not going to make any money at it. So what the fuck does it matter anyway? Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's that point of like, you just, it, it's like when you think about it, it, it's just like, you can't imagine being at that place of just that level of kind of just complete loss and nothingness. No, absolutely. It's, it's just absolute and complete depression. But I think that's why I bring up what I bring up is, mm-hmm. you know, you'd hope we're better off now but at the same time who knows where we're headed right so i mean i, I suppose it's that thing of it's it's you know it, it, it's kind of it's probably hard for us to imagine even like what that level of depression and loss is yeah if you think about it are we actually 
that much more advanced if you look at, say, these things like Love Island and, uh, you know, these other reality shows. Are we, are we actually, or I'm a celebrity, where essentially that's what we're, that's what we, you, you, you know, you're watching somebody eat what, like, I don't know, alligator testicles or whatever because you want to see them suffer. Like, are we actually that much better now than then? I mean, I suppose maybe you could say that, like, I'm sure I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, has, you know, medical staff standing by. But then again, so does the fucking dance competition. They got medical staff there. So, I mean, there's that little part of me that's like, have we actually advanced in in, in terms of this human desire to watch people be degraded and brought to these really low points? I'd say that people are at least getting paid. Yeah. So they're getting paid and like regardless of how much they're getting paid because I'm sure that there are some shows that pay better than others other people will do it for the fame because then you know people know the people that are on those shows and then they can go on to sell their stories whereas it's, it's because it's broadcast whereas like obviously this was just taking pl- place in a hall somewhere mm. and it only happened once so that was kind of part of it I guess but you know, you could tune in by walking in and walking back out again, but the people would still keep doing what they were doing. Uh, I think that's what the inherent difference is. And also, I would also say that it's a lot easier now to get help if you want help. I I would say I just kind of, I found it disturbing how prevalent I thought the film still is. Oh, yeah. Considering this was a book that was written in 1933 about the Depression and then the film was made in 1969, I feel like this feels still incredibly modern. Oh, it's very relevant. And I I think what you're saying, and I guess what you were trying to get at, is not that people would necessarily be more likely or as likely to end up in the same situation as Jane Fonda's character. I think what you're saying is that there's still very clearly uh, a wish to want to watch things like that and see people suffer so no but i i guess that's just like an inherent part of human nature clearly i mean but i mean i'm I'm not trying to i'm not trying to sit on a on on a ivory tower or anything but it i it's not something i find very interesting i don't particularly i don't watch i'm a celebrity i don't watch a lot of these reality tv shows so I, i think it is something that i still personally find somewhat alien this desire to watch at the same time though wouldn't you say that to an extent watching things like documentaries and reading books about certain situations like even if you're not going out of your way to watch something that has been curated to let you see people suffer if you like there is still enough suffering out there for you to be able to read about or uh watch things that would then make you go oh wow that's that's so bad I suppose I'm it, glad. I'm glad that's not me. I suppose that's a good point, certainly. But I, so it's I think, not that I'm saying that no. you, you go to watch these things or read these things to get that out of it. But what I'm saying is that there is definitely something there that I think that there is something there for all of us, no matter what form it ends up taking in terms of you know, wanting to compare, essentially wanting to compare your life to someone else's. I think it's, I think it's the organized structured element of it though, that I think disturbs me. It's, it's so, I mean, if I'm watching a movie that say about, you know, sort of suffering or something like that, say I'm watching wake and fright, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I know that's not a real guy, you know, whereas if I'm watching 
a program that it like I'm a celebrity, everything is being manipulated to create that. So even like you're watching X Factor, you're being manipulated the whole time because it's 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 faking the reality to give you this impetus that this is happening to real people. And that's, I think, a little bit different than watching it in a sort of movie form or just reading articles about things that are happening in the world. Sure. But then X, I know it's it's difficult because we're talking about different things and we don't watch Love Island, so that's obviously <laughs> doesn't help. But like with something like X Factor, I mean, I used to watch X Factor religiously as well as American Idol, and then it all just got a little bit too much and repetitive. But when I watched it, and the reason I enjoyed it when I watched it was because, you know, it was these people's hopes and dreams, and you were going to help contribute to you know them becoming the next best thing type thing so i guess that's kind of like the reverse of it in a weird way is it's less about the suffering it's more about you know willing people on and imagining yourself into their shoes being like what would it be like if i went on x factor and i know but i I think at the same time it still does play into an element of this because uh, part of what you see in this dance competition is people they pick their favorites they root for them they get them sponsorship they try to sort of they they, they will them to win mm-hmm. so they still attach themselves to the story of these people and whether they're actually going to succeed or not so i think i think you're right in the sense that it's it's much more there's a sense of optimism with x factor um but the competition element is still very is still oh. very parallel to this yeah 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 of course of course but and i i kind of I actually remember thinking during the film, I bet there's a lot of betting that goes on outside oh, yeah, of definitely. Uh, the actual competition as well as to who's going to win. So you'd vouch for and support your team because you'd also be betting and gambling on the side, well, which is a whole other level of like human existence. Which well, is, this is something that also... I personally don't like the idea of gambling because I can't control it because I'm a control freak. Um, but I know that a lot of people get a lot of kicks out of gambling. Well, there's something that's so kind of like fascinatingly absurdist too about this idea of, oh, um, we're going to uh, sponsor these people by um, sticking uh, a sweater on them with the company's name because that'll be a great form of advertising is having these people who are in this dance competition who look half dead, who are shuffling around the floor wearing a sweater that says our company's name on it. Yeah, but then to an extent you have to think about that these people would have become their temporary celebrities and you think about how celebrities function for... For us now. Well, I, I think I think they're essentially a NASCAR. You know, it's like yeah. how the, you stick stickers on NASCAR with company ads. Yeah, it's 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 uh, visual space to occupy um, for people to go. Oh, it's it's that per- I like that person. What's that sweater he's wearing? Oh, that's that's that company. Maybe mm. I'll use that company. But I mean, again, it's it's part of the whole dehumanization that goes into it, where people just become billboards. They become yeah. characters to sell as part of this overall experience. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I think we can, I think we can wrap it up. But um, I, uh, you know, I, I'm very, very taken with this movie, um, and it's like it, it's, it's a. Just I think a, it was the realization yeah. of that this actually happened. Yeah. That was sort of you know if if it had been made up, I would have been like, whoa, that's an insane like story to come up with. But no, this actually happened. Like these things happened and. People let it go ahead. I mean, you can imagine the health and safety issues what's, is, <laughs> nowadays. Well, it's interesting because the book was written at the time. So it's set in 1932. The book was written in 1933. So it's, 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 it's a current thing it's talking about in the book. It's a sort of existentialist book. Um, and then 
you know, the film in 1969 is obviously, you know, a period piece then. Um, but so I think, I think it's interesting how, even though the book is being written about the current time, no matter when you, when, no matter when you see it, it feels modern. Yeah. And I think there is something, it's clearly tapping into some innate element of humanity, which as you said, like goes as far back as the Romans, you know, and then, and the, well, I mean, probably goes beyond the Romans probably goes to, you know, the first uh, monkeys walking upright. It's, mm. it's, there's some innate fascination with suffering in, you know, and, and, and a form compa- of suffering for entertainment. Yeah, but also comparing yourself to other people, because I think whether you take it in the direction of suffering or you take it in the direction of even just, you know, watching rich people sort of dawdle about their amazing cribs and whatever, like there's always a compar- a comparison aspect. So you know, very recent things are Instagram mm-hmm. and like promotions and sponsorships and stuff like that that go on there. When even like it's like you, you look at, say, like these um, YouTube takedowns where like mm. a YouTuber's like, hey, I've discovered this shit or I've discovered these old videos about this person. And then they it's like everyone piles on. Everyone makes a response yeah. video. And it's it's part of that where everyone then gets to laugh and mock this sort of stupid yeah. person for saying this stupid shit. Um, basically I, and so it, that they're happy to build them up, but they're also happy to take them down because you know, what, what responsibility do they have? We've gone I, very modern now, haven't we? Yeah. But I, mm. I, I think, I think that's, but I, I think mean, that's the fast think about, think about the thumbs up and the thumbs down on YouTube videos, guys. I mean, gladiator much, but I think the thing that's really, really fascinating though, too, though, is that this is something that outside of this book and this movie, I've never fucking heard of like nobody yeah. talks about that. This, this was, these things happen. It's like, so it's these weird, this weird curio from our history that we did. Mm. We've just sort of conveniently forgotten that these events took place, yeah. you know, and, 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 and you know, at partially, maybe that's because really they're still taking place in some form or another. Okay, so that was they shoot horses, don't they? And they do. They do shoot horses. They do indeed shoot horses. So um, thank you to Alex for you're very welcome coming aboard. Um, so let me, uh, let, me, let me do my best horse impression. <laughs> I want to see what's your what's your best Austin impression? Do an Austin impression. Oh my god! I think I just do an American accent. Do an American accent. <laughs> give me your do your Austin. Oh my god! I don't know. Oh, Say hey, what up, bro? Okay. Hey, what up, bro? I love philosophy. I love philosophy. <laughs> I love falafels. <laughs> You're making him sound like he's like a Texan or something like that. I love falafels. I've been watching too much like uh, self. Give me Canadian. No, not Canadian. Sorry, Californian. So there's this interesting philosopher who's who's like a totally cool dude, and yeah, I love philosophy. 
<laughs> <laughs> that is so not what he sounds like. Okay, so he's like, I'm I'm just not cool enough to be Austin. I mean, I share a name with him, but apart from that, so um, basically, because Austin was not on this week, he has forfeited his opportunity to pick next week's film. So uh-huh. I am going to pick next week's film, and we are going to be talking about a dark, strange comedy came out a number of years ago, starring uh, Seth Rogen. Uh, one of two movies came out the same year about uh, overconfident mall cops. Uh, this was the much better one out of the two. Uh, this movie is Observe and Report, uh, filmed in uh, my home state of New Mexico. Uh, Will there be a mall in it that you recognize? There may be a mall in it that I recognize. Um, fun story, when we were watching Better Call Saul, Kay was like, oh, that looks strangely familiar when Saul is walking through the mall. And it then suddenly turned out that it was where he grew up, and that's why he recognized it, because it was in Albuquerque. And it's 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 a mall, not a mall. It's a, a mall, mall, darling. It's a, it's a, mall. It's a mall. A mall. The shopping mall. The shopping mall. Okay, so yeah, so next week we will be watching Observe and Report. Uh, in the meantime, please rate us and write us reviews. Would be much appreciated. And um, you can find my work at uh, kierseward.com. Um Also, you can check out my Instagram at Breaking Point Flicks. Uh, Alex, do you have anywhere people can go find you? Or <laughs> look find at your me. work. Sounds very stalkery. Uh, but in a more positive light, yes. Please do write us reviews and stuff like that. It'd be really cool. Uh, I am... A lot of my film stuff is uh, what you can find on... That was terrible. Uh, My stuff you can find under Lone Lara or Lone Lara Films a lot of the time. Yes, after Lara Croft because I'm very cool. And uh, yeah, just alex-austin.com. That's where my website is. And Instagram is lonelara underscore... And yeah, that's about it, really. Yep, okay, so we will see you next week for Observe and Report. Peace out. Bye.